0: Welcome to the Bible Questions podcast, brought to you by BibleQuestions.org and the Holly Street Church of Christ. This podcast is dedicated to answering your Bible questions from the Bible. My name is Brian, and along with Jeff, we are the hosts of this program.
1: Greetings, and welcome to the Bible Questions podcast program, put on by the Holly Street Church of Christ in Denver, Colorado. Uh, As usual, you've got your co-hosts, Brian and Jeff, today. And Brian, today we're going to look at some things that are not found in the Bible. I mean, normally we emphasize, you know, scriptural authority for stuff and, you know, come up with, you know, scriptural references or, you know, doctrine, practices, history. We're going to kind of turn the tables and find cases where people think things are in the Bible, but they aren't. How about that for today?
0: Yeah, that's excellent. Looking forward to it.
1: Yeah. So, you know, as we continue to emphasize on our program, you know, looking to the Bible as God's word, you know, for all spiritual truth, all spiritual guidance, you know, from God, for our, you know, daily lives and activities, the things we believe, the things we practice, etc. And, you know, certainly within that context, you know, a lot of people make a lot of claims about what the Bible says. And these things, you know, certainly sound biblical. But if you dig a little bit, they're not. Uh Or in some cases, uh, it may be kind of biblical, kind of scriptural, um, but it's a misunderstanding or or misinterpretation of what the Bible says. So what we've done is we've gathered almost 30 uh, examples of what many people think are in in the Bible, uh, but are not. Honestly, some of these are trivial, uh, but some, as we'll see, are very consequential. And I think at, at the end of the day, it really illustrates the importance of very carefully searching the scriptures to see if what people claim about it is actually true. In fact, even within the scriptures, we have a, a good example of that. Uh, if you want to, over in Acts chapter 17, when Paul was on one of his uh, journeys you know, around the Mediterranean, spreading the gospel, he came to a place called Berea. And in verse uh, 10 uh, of Acts 17, as he you know comes into Berea, and you know, when they arrived, of course, this is Paul and Silas, when they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews, and these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica, which is where they just come from, in that they received the word with all readiness and, to our point, searched the scriptures daily <laughs> to find out whether... These things were so, you know, the things claimed by, you know, Paul and Silas. So we're gonna we're gonna kind of do the same thing today. And in general, we've uh, organized these thirty, uh, roughly thirty examples in a couple of categories that Brian and I will kind of take turns uh, addressing. Uh, first category is related to history uh, in the scriptures. Next category are items related to salvation. That's followed by uh, Christian living and the kinds of things we should and shouldn't be doing. Uh, worship. Uh, and then I believe we'll wrap up with uh, things people claim the Bible teaches about the afterlife. So stay tuned for uh, these kinds of topics that are right around the corner. Ryan, anything else you want to introduce before we go to our first category?
0: Yeah, I think we all at times can repeat things that we hear just in general in life without verifying whether it's true. You know, I'm thinking about like in the workplace, somebody may take a specific action because so-and-so told them they should, and it may not necessarily be accurate, so they've made an error. Well, certainly when it comes to, as you mentioned, what the Bible says, a lot of times the same thing can happen. They just hear something, you know, and they claim it's true, but they don't have book, chapter, and verse, or, you know, once again, it's just not in there. And then, as you were talking about, you know, like trivial details, it's also easy for us to get hung up on some of these trivial things. Trivial as in compared to what the actual point is, or the commandment, or the lesson that God wants us to learn. So, you know, we not only need to verify what is being said is in the Bible, but we really need to seek to understand the lessons surrounding what's mentioned, and sometimes that's missed as well.
1: Good point. Yeah, while you were talking, I was thinking of the phrase that we sometimes hear today, urban legends Mm. that get repeated.
0: Or old wives' tales. (laughs) Well,
1: exactly, you know, that have, interestingly enough, you know, no basis in fact or no basis in history or maybe just a hint but somehow the the story got distorted so uh yeah we'll kind of look at both of those today
0: yeah so as you mentioned we'll go ahead and start with history so let's take a look at some here uh one that's probably familiar to our listeners is that there is an apple in the garden or that adam and eve ate of an apple and that caused some problems and so when you look at western art it's, you know, and specifically art around Adam and Eve, you know, they traditionally depict this nice, bright red apple that was eaten in the garden. But the Bible isn't specific and doesn't say that it was an apple. So if you look in Genesis chapter 3, where it, you know, talks about Eve actually eating some of the fruit and sharing it with Adam, it never says that it's an apple. And kind of going back to the point I just made, you know, the key emphasis, of course, was not on the fruit. And that may be why God didn't mention what kind. There were many fruit trees in the garden, but the emphasis was really on the fact that they were not to eat of that fruit of that tree, which was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because God said in Genesis chapter 2 and verses 16 and 17, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so that's the, the bigger point here. How about a whale swallowed Jonah? That's another one very common, probably familiar to us all. And of course the Bible never specifically says that it was a whale instead of you know it's a large fish when you look at the, some of the translations do actually translate the word there whale and so if you were to look in Jonah chapter 1 and verse 17 and Matthew chapter 12 verse 40 some of the translations like the King James for instance uses the word whale but if you look at the original Hebrew and Greek it just simply means great fish and so that's Once again, one of those misnomers where it's not talking about well. And then talking about emphasis again, the key emphasis here is that Jonah tried to run away from God when God asked him to go and to preach to Nineveh. Uh, He didn't want to do that, so he tried to escape. He was on this ship. It created turmoil for those on the ship because a terrible storm came up, and it didn't calm down until Jonah was thrown over at his own request of course, when he was thrown off the ship is when he was swallowed by that great fish. So anyhow, that's the the main point there. And and once again, just a a large fish. Okay, three wise men. This is one we see a lot around Christmas. And so once again, we find a specific conclusion, if you will, drawn from limited information in the Bible. And, And often it's drawn because it was popularized by art later on and so you know there's a song that some sing around christmas we three kings of orient are but once again bible doesn't say anything about there being three kings number one but number two that there were three and so if you were to look in the bible in matthew chapter 2 verses 1 through 12 it tells us that there were three gifts that were brought to jesus gold frankincense and myrrh and that there was more than one wise man or some translations say magi which If you look at that word, it means wise men specializing in astronomy, astrology, and natural science. And that's important because they are the ones that looked up in the sky and saw the star that indicated that, you know, the Savior had been born. But once again, it doesn't tell us that there were three. And if you think about some nativity scenes where you see the three wise men around this manger well a couple things one is that not only were they not three but we don't know, necessarily know that when they visited Jesus that he was still an infant because if you go to Matthew chapter 2 and verse 16 where Herod sends out a command to kill any child that was 2 years or younger well Jesus could have been up to 2 years old so he may not have been in a manger and in fact it's likely that it wasn't he wasn't in a manger because when you first read about them going down to Egypt, there was no room in the inn, so they went out to a stable. But yet in Matthew 2.16, it talks about how they visited Jesus in a house. And so maybe he was an infant, maybe he wasn't, we don't necessarily know. So, And really, there shouldn't be nativity scenes anyways, right? It's not something where we celebrate Jesus' birth, but that's another subject altogether. Okay, next one. Jesus had long hair and light skin, so a lot of artist depictions of Jesus you see have him looking that way. But first and foremost, we have to realize that none of the artists that drew pictures had ever seen Jesus, of course, because their paintings were made several hundred years after he was on the earth. And there was nothing in the Bible or documents at that time that described Jesus in enough detail that they would have known what he looked like. Now, if you look at some of the earliest paintings, it depicts Jesus as the good shepherd, a young, short-haired, beardless man with the lamb around his shoulders. And if you do a little bit of studying on this, what you'll find is that according to historians after 400 AD, additional images of Jesus started to be found in many churches, and in catacombs, and on the vestments of priests. And they tell us that you know, the artist chose to depict Jesus with long hair, and it was done on purpose. It wasn't a random decision by these artists. And the reason why is they, they chose to portray Jesus this way because the male gods of the Greco-Roman pantheon almost always were depicted with long hair. In fact, it's interesting, Jeff, when you look at some of the pictures, you know, the ones I've seen are, are Jesus with like a straight hair and brown hair and so forth. But yet, if you look at the Greek images of him, he has like a curly long curly hair like you would see once again with a lot of their greek gods and so forth and so i have a quote here from uh, thomas matthews who wrote a book called the clash of the gods and he says in greek and roman art loose long hair was a mark of divinity and letting his hair down christ took on an aura of divinity that set him apart from the disciples and onlookers who were represented with him so once again an artist decision not based on any fact you would find in the Bible. And then the final thing on this one is that there was a rare early portrait of Jesus that was discovered in 2018 on the walls of a ruined church in southern Israel. And they estimated that it was painted in the 6th century AD and it's the earliest known image of Christ found in Israel. And in that painting, it portrays him with shorter curly hair, a depiction that was common in the eastern region of the Byzantine Empire, especially in Egypt and in syria-palestine region but disappeared from later Byzantine art so kind of interesting all right one other in this category of history and then jeff i'll turn it over to you for salvation and that is god works in mysterious ways now this is one i've heard a lot throughout life and i guess in general we we could say well that can be true based on some of the things we do read in scripture but It's not necessarily something that you'll find in the Bible. There's no verse that says God works in mysterious ways. And so, you know, the scripture is full of God doing things in unusual ways to mankind, that we know. And if you look over in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 8 and 9, we are told that, you know, God's thoughts and ways are different and higher than ours. But once again, no prophet or no one ever actually uttered these words or we don't find them in the Bible itself. So Jeff, that's kind of a lot. There we may have some comments on some of that. Let me turn it over to you for any thoughts you have on that.
1: Oh, no, I, I appreciate that. And again, it's one of those uh, things that may challenge our thinking because we're so used to, you know, seeing references to, as you said, Apple in the Garden of Eden, uh, or that there were, you know, three wise men in the manger with the shepherds, et cetera. The one I thought, uh, which I was not aware of before you, you shared your research with us. Was that the depiction of Jesus often reflect, well, first of all, you know, no one who saw Jesus had a Kodak camera, you know took a picture of him, yeah. painted a picture, whatever, okay. so it, it's all based on hundreds, you know, a thousand years, you know, almost two thousand years, you know after he lived. But uh, the key point is it sort of reflected the perceptions of the people at the time the artist did his work, you know, in the Renaissance, you know, as an example. With Renaissance people being from Europe, well, they depicted Jesus as a European, you know, more of a fair skin, light skin, you know, uh, kind of individual, you know, as opposed to a well. Today we might consider you know, Middle Eastern, Mediterranean, you know, a little bit darker skin, etc. And of course, as you said, with uh, ditto with uh, hairstyles. Um, yeah, I, I think I maybe have even seen some depictions of Jesus that you know not only have long hair but You know, almost like reddish colored, like a very fair skinned, you know, ginger, uh, uh, redheaded uh, kind of person. Again, just reflecting the bias of the artist at the time. So just have to be careful for what people claim (laughs) the Bible says or uh, about history and historical. That's exactly right. And, you know, arguably we could say, well, those those are somewhat trivial. And okay, I I can grant you that. Since you mentioned uh, it's more there's some things that are more important in the story uh, to get correct. Uh, our next general category, you know, beyond history, definitely is consequential. Uh, And that's the general theme or category of salvation. Uh, And I say salvation because there's a lot of claims out there, again, what the Bible says, related to, um, you know, the nature of man, sin, uh, becoming saved, uh, nature of Satan, etc. So we've got to you know, a a collection of those that we want to go through relatively quickly. So first of all, uh, there's a concept very popular today called total depravity or total inherited depravity, which was popularized uh, by, uh, at least within recent centuries, uh, by John Calvin. Uh, However, when you start digging into the scriptures, we see, you know, based all the way back in uh, Genesis chapter 1, where, you know, humanity was made in the image of God, fearfully and wonderfully made. Uh, Psalms 139 verse 14. Uh, and at least at the end of creation, you know God saw everything that He had made, uh, including you know humankind, was very good. Uh, Genesis one thirty one. Certainly, as we mentioned before, with the uh, fruit, of the knowledge of good and evil, you know Adam and Eve gained knowledge of good and evil, Genesis three: seven. But that really did not alter their eternal spirit, which is given by God. Uh, And the fact that all of humanity's, uh, you know, subsequent to that event, you know, their spirit comes from God, not totally inherited depravity. In fact, Ezekiel chapter 18, verse 4, I think kind of summarizes it very nicely. Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. Not that we're born sinners, but that when we choose to sin individually, total, total depravity, one of those things that uh, people you know, misunderstand from the scriptures. How about this one? Money is the root of all evil. Now, our listeners may have heard that term. That's not quite right. It's close. But the, this phrase is missing a couple important words. Uh, you can find it over in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, that actually says the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, not just money in and of itself. In fact, there are a number of you know rich people within the scriptures that were faithful uh, believers, and you know the, the concept of them having to give away all of their money, take a vow of poverty, is foreign to the scriptures. In terms of salvation, how about the arch enemy of mankind? Satan, the devil, often depicted, just like we talked about images of Jesus. Okay, well, we've got images of, of Satan. He's got horns, he's got pitch, a pitchfork, he's got red skin. Sometimes he's depicted as having a tail, furry legs and hooves like a goat. <laughs> Where in the world did that come from? Well, the Bi- certainly not the Bible. Uh, there's no such description in the Bible. And for the most part, this kind of a goat-like depiction doesn't really show up that much in you know medieval and even Renaissance uh, imagery of the devil. But certainly by roughly the 19th century, You know, this concept of a horned devil with, you know, cloven hooves uh, seems to have been firmly established. Now, what's interesting, Brian, you know, you mentioned Greek and Roman uh, mythology and and the gods and goddesses. So in this particular case, there was in Greek mythology uh, a person by the name of Pan. Interestingly enough, uh, he is, was the the, the the god or the, uh, uh, or whatever, associated with the outdoors, with shepherds, with flocks. And he is often shown with furry hind legs, hooves, and horns. You know, upper body of a human, lower body of a goat. Hmm, interesting. Maybe that's where the depiction of Satan came from. We don't know. Bottom line, the Bible does not tell us what Satan looks like. So, most modern depictions is like, nah, who knows where that came from. Here's another thing related to salvation that you, that you may hear, depending on your religious background. An altar call, an altar call. That terminology, you know, you you can't find that terminology in the scriptures. Now, normally altar, that term primarily is an Old Testament concept associated with killing and offering animal sacrifices. And yet some people have retained that concept of having an altar in their sanctuary, in their church building, but they don't offer animal sacrifices on it. So it's like misuse of a Bible term. Uh, now, admittedly, Hebrews chapter thirteen verse ten uh, does talk about altar in connection with the Lord's supper. Uh, in that particular passage, again Hebrews thirteen ten, we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat, contextually referring to the Lord's supper. But the concept of an altar call, having people come forward as part of becoming a Christian, terminology—it's just foreign to the scriptures. Here's another one that's very popular. Having a personal relationship with Jesus. Well, unless I'm missing something, I was not able to find that terminology in the Bible. Now, certainly John 15, 15, Jesus talking to his disciples, did refer to them as friends. But I think the key point, Brian, here is not a friendship of equals, but something more than that. For instance, you know, within the scriptures Jesus is described as our lord, our master with us as servants. Uh, he's described and, and describes himself as the good shepherd and we are described as sheep. Uh, John 10, you know, 11 and 4 through 14 is a classic uh, or a typical example of that. Uh, Jesus is described as the vine, we're the branches, John 15:4 verse 5. So a relationship? Sure. Buddy-buddy? No, not really. Uh, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, uh, as an example. for uh, And Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. So there's a sense in which we have, you know, Jesus within us, guiding us, you know, through the scriptures. But this kind of a personal, quote unquote, having a personal relationship with Jesus, end quote. I really couldn't find that terminology. Here's another one, very common, very popular term. The sinner's prayer. The sinner's prayer. Can't find that in the Bible, believe it or not. That may shock a lot of people. But within scriptures, prayer is reserved for the faithful, the faithful children of God. It is not something you do to become a Christian. It is something you do as a Christian, to pray. Uh, in fact, a notable example, you know, Saul of Tarsus, uh, his conversion process, if you will. So, Acts chapter 9, you may notice in verses 8 through 11 that after having seen Jesus on the road to Damascus, he's now in Damascus, and for three days he is fasting and Praying. And yet, according to a parallel account over in Acts 22, verse 12, Ananias, who comes to him to give him instructions on what he must do to be saved, he says, Now, why are you tarrying? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. So, three days worth of praying, arguably praying the sinner's prayer, perhaps, if you will, had not succeeded in his salvation. He needed to be baptized to, quote, unquote, wash away his sins, Acts 22, verse 12. Two more related to salvation. uh, One's related to, and again, here's another very popular phrase, faith only, faith only, faith alone, whatever. Now, that script, that uh, phrase, is scriptural, faith only. Found in James 2, verse 17, and verse 24. But note, even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead being alone, faith alone. And further on down, you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. Interesting that the phrase faith only is found in the scriptures, teaching just the opposite of what people claim it is today. Galatians chapter 5 verse 6, a very good passage. For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision availeth anything, but faith working through love. Okay, last one, confirmation uh, for our uh, Catholic friends um, and maybe some Catholic-like denominations, if you will. Confirmation, hmm, well, that's a concept, that's a a term and a concept that likewise is foreign to the Bible, can't find it. Uh, At least according to a Wikipedia reference I found, it does tend to be associated with Catholicism and with, at least according to Wikipedia, the effect of the Sacrament of Confirmation is the special outpouring of the Holy Spirit as once granted to the Apostles on the day of Pentecost." That surprised me, quite frankly, Brian. I thought Confirmation was something that, you know, relatively young Catholics, and I'm not certain exactly what age, you know, it's like a ceremony they go through to, you know, confirm the fact that they will be, you know, faithful Catholics. I didn't really connect it with, you know, Holy Spirit baptism like apostles on the day of pentecost and miraculous whatever you know that that might not be accurate but at least it's again what i found in wikipedia uh certainly within the scriptures we can read about the laying on the apostles hands uh to grant special miracle working ability you know in the early church per good example acts 8 14 through 17. but likewise in first corinthians 13 we see that those uh, miraculous gifts were uh, temporary until that which is perfect would come, uh, which we understand to be the completed revelation of the New Testament, uh, the scriptures, written written documents. So there you go, Brian, uh, a number of things related to salvation that people claim are in the Bible that are either not at all or mm, kind of hinted at, but kind of a misunderstanding.
0: Any comments? Yeah, those are some really good ones. And I just Comments on two of them briefly. One was on the first one you mentioned about total depravity. And we know that whether it's Calvinism or, or like every false doctrine, really, or many, I should say, they often will take one passage and build their doctrine around that without considering the context. So this concept of original sin and how we're incapable of doing good, you know, sometimes the Calvinists, for instance, will look in Romans chapter three and verse 10, and they'll look just that verse. There is none righteous, no, not one. And they say, well, there you go. We're all born in sin. But you have to keep reading, right? Verse 11, there is no one who understands. There is none who seeks after God. That's a choice. They have all turned aside, verse 12. Well, that sounds like Romans three twenty-three, right? That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And what's interesting in verse 10, it says, as it is written. Well, the as it is written is referring back to Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3, where it says, you know, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. Okay, that's clearly a choice they've made. They don't believe there's a God. It says they are corrupt. They have done abominable works. Okay, that's things they have done. And then it says, there is none who does good. Then if you skip down to verse 3 of Psalm 14, they have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. Then it says again, there is none who does good. No, not one. So once again, can't take just that simple statement, there is none righteous, no, not one, and try to say... Therefore, it proves we have original sin. The The second one that you'd mentioned was the sinner's prayer. And sometimes people will tell us, hey, you know what, it is in my Bible. You're saying it's not, but it is. Well, it may be in your Bible, but it's because it was added by the publisher. So if it's in the first few pages, that's not part of the quote unquote Bible. It's just in that particular version or book that you bought where the publisher has decided to put the sinner's prayer in there. But you'll notice there's no scriptures that they associate with it, or if they do, it's once again out of context, because it's not in the canon itself, the actual scripture. So anyhow. Oh, appreciate that, Brian. So the next section is Christian living. And in this one here, there's one uh, that you may have heard, cleanliness is next to godliness. And I seem to remember, like, my mother may have told me that. I don't know. It was like one of these general statements that people make. But it's it's not in the Scriptures. I mean, the Old Testament contains a lot of rules about ritual cleanliness and, you know, specifically what needed to be done. But even though this is biblically sounding, you know, it's kind of a biblically sounding proverb. It's, It's not found in the Scriptures. Next one, God will not give you more than you can handle. Another one where, yeah, you could say it's generally true if you look at some specific passages, but, you know, what we don't know is like the origin, but it's it was probably, you know, somebody was well-meaning that may have been looking to kind of sum up what's taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and verse 13, as a way of comforting a person going through a trial. But that's not really what that verse or any other verse in the Bible teaches us, I mean, as, as far as it's saying that specifically. Now, we do have many cases where somebody faced something they couldn't handle, but with God's help, they were able to handle any temptation that came their way related to that turmoil. So think about something happens terribly in your life. You're, you have a, an emotional breakdown, let's say, and a result of that could be that you're tempted to be angry at God or angry at other people and sin but going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 13 God has said you know there's no temptation that is overtaking you except as such as is common to man so all these temptations we go through are common to man but notice it says but God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it so that's talking specifically about temptation and no doubt when you're going through something terrible And you may have this emotional breakdown. It can lead to temptations, but God's not going to once again overwhelm you with a temptation where now I'm just going to sin. I have no choice but to sin. And so I think that's the, the distinction there. Now, if we could handle everything that came our way, then it would be easy to believe that we do not need God's assistance. But we can't handle everything that comes our way, and that's why we continually need guidance from God's Word. And so we come to learn that, of course, as we study the Bible. All right, the next one, God helps those who help themselves. Another quote that people claim are in the Bible, but you would have to ask, well, where does the phrase actually come from? Because it's not in the Bible. Now, it is in some other religious documents. And so, for instance, uh, the Quran has something similar in, in chapter 13 and verse 11. There are also variations from, you know, what we might call proverbial statements in ancient Greek tragedies where you'll find something like that. There's even an English politician that gave us the exact wording which Benjamin Franklin quotes in his Poor Richard's Almanac. So God helps those who help themselves. But that's once again not found in the Bible. Now, when we look at Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, we see that it's really the exact opposite. So while we were still sinners and unable to help ourselves, Christ died for us, proving how much God loves us, You know, how amazing His grace is and how incapable we are of, quote-unquote, helping ourselves. We truly are. And so, you know, you think about a lot of people in the world, they follow their own will. They reject God. And, you know, ultimately, they suffer the consequences. But the Bible makes it clear we need God. He created us. He gave us His direction. We absolutely need His help in all matters of life. Okay, another one. Quote, this too shall pass. Now, this is a statement that, for those of you that uh, are familiar with American football, there was a a famous coach by the name of Mike Ditka who was fired by his team, the Chicago Bears. And when he was speaking to the media afterwards, he said, this too shall pass. And so that may be where that came from, famous quote. But it's not really true as some things like think about long-term illnesses. Somebody has terminal cancer you can't really say this too will pass, you'll eventually get rid of that because that may not necessarily be true. And so, you know, it's it's likely that whether it's Mike Dick or others really kind of confused it with the phrase it came to pass that appears over 400 times in the King James Version or potentially, you know, the sentiment from Second Corinthians chapter 4, verses 17 and 18, where Paul says here, therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So, you know, from a spiritual perspective, yes, eventually anything that happens in this life will pass when we die. uh, And hopefully we are faithful enough that we are you know, uh, found faithful and and will have the chance to go to heaven. But anyhow, that quote itself, not found in the Bible. Okay, one more. Love the sinner, hate the sin. So this is one that's very common. Many of us probably have heard. And it kind of goes back a ways, um, not quite to biblical times. So in the 5th century, Augustine, who was Catholic, wrote a line which translates roughly to with love for mankind and hatred of sins. And so... You know, we could say, listen, it's biblical though, right? We we do have the principle taught in the scriptures that we are always love sinners and to hate sin. And so one example of that can be found in Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 and 44. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use and persecute you. So here Jesus is teaching us that we're not to have malice and hatred in our heart for sinners, but instead we should pray that they will turn to the Lord and always hope the best for them versus some type of evil. In fact, Psalm 97 verse 10 in part says, you who love the Lord hate evil. So no doubt uh, we hate evil and everything associated with it, but we we want the sinner to repent.
1: Jeff? Yeah, lots of good, uh, good thoughts there. You know, I'm kind of reminded, at least to a limited degree, about all the current ongoing controversy with uh, sexuality, you know, LGBTQ plus and accusations of being homophobic or transphobic or, you know, hating people, etc. And, you know, there may be some people out there that hate these people and, and would wish, you know, malice upon them. But at least as you've indicated, you know, from the scriptures, at least our, our attitude in general should be, you know, disgusted by their behavior, right? Uh, because you know, Bible you know, clearly condemns it in several places as, as sinful activity, uh, and yet still wanting what is best for them, which would be you know repentance and and coming to you know a saving relationship with God and putting these evil things behind them. What what some people kind of you know, I guess have struggled a little bit with is because these are behaviors. If you say you know the Bible condemns. Homosexual behavior, as an example, and people would say, "Well, that's because you say that you must hate the people." No, shouldn't. Uh, you would want them to, you know, recognize their uh, their condition and recognize what the Bible says, acknowledge God as Creator, Jesus as Savior, etc., uh, and come to a, a saving knowledge of what they should do. Anyway, lots of things related to Christian living, uh, as we've said, the Bible teaches different than what uh, people claim. Uh, speaking of differences, uh, that kind of moves us on to our next category of worship. Now, this category is generally speaking, you know, things associated with not only worship but uh, the church, uh, you know, local congregations, leadership, um, organizational structure, etc. So, in this category, we'll get this one started. How about calling uh, your religious leader father? Now, that's very common, uh, you know, within Catholicism and some related denominations. And yet, here's one that's just totally the opposite. That is forbidden by Jesus. In fact, Brian, if you could, how about if you would read for our listeners Matthew chapter 6, verses 6 through 12.
0: Okay, uh, here it says, They love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But you' Do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ. And you are all brethren. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Yeah, a good passage,
1: really, just in a blanket way, covers all sorts of religious titles you know, Father Joe, or Rabbi Joe, or Pastor Joe, or at least in our modern day, Pastor Jane, right? Uh, Reverend Joe, etc. So calling religious leaders by specific titles forbidden in the scriptures. How about clerical robes? Now, a lot of religious groups will have, you know, special robes, or they may have a special thing, like a, a special shirt they wear, a special collar, you know, that indicates their um, position, if you will, as a member of the clergy. Uh, and yet, again, going back to Matthew chapter 6, uh, this concept of doing something to be seen of men, you know, Jesus basically condemns, chapter five or, uh, Matthew 6, verse 5, but all their works they do to be seen by men. And then he's about to refer to some specific articles of clothing that the Pharisees had. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments, basically, signals, if you will, with their clothing of special religious status. Hmm. Sounds very similar to religious leaders today wearing some special robes, you know, up in front of the congregation, doesn't it? Here's another one having a pastor in charge of the congregation, singular person and designated as a pastor. Now, here's, Brian, an interesting one that has an element of truth. Certainly within scriptures, we see the word pastor, you know, depending on your translation, as a term of, of someone who is shepherding a flock. In fact, that's what, it's mainly mainly a verb. But more importantly, what we'll see in the Bible, there's a lot of synonyms. Pastor, shepherd, like we're seeing. Overseer, Bishop, Presbyter, and Elder. Now, in some religious groups, those terms are used to refer to different classes of people, but within Scripture, they're basically all the same group of people. Uh, Acts chapter 20, and we can kind of show that. Acts chapter 20, uh, verse 17, and verse 28. So verse 17 says, uh, Paul uh, this is referring to Paul from Miletus. He sent to Ephesus, sent a message to Ephesus, and called for the elders of the church. Come on down to verse 28. When he's addressing this group, therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. To shepherd the church of God. Elders, overseers, shepherd. And synonymous terms. Similarly, uh, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Peter addressing his audience. The elders who are among you, I exhort. I, who am a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ and also a partaker of the glory which shall be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers. Again, elder, shepherd, overseers. Synonymous terms, same position. In fact, if you want to come over to 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1, these elders, Shepherds, pastors, overseers have to meet certain qualifications, including being married men. If you have a pastor who's not married and not a man, he's not qualified to be a pastor, according to the scriptures, 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. Another point uh, regarding pastor, Uh, and this this is pretty subtle. But when you look through all the references to this particular role, it's always mentioned in a plurality, more than one. The concept of a singular person being in charge of the entire congregation is not scriptural. It's always a plurality of married men who meet these qualifications that we mentioned earlier. So there you go. Having a single person called a pastor in charge of a congregation. Very common, not scriptural. Here's another one that I found kind of interesting, just did a little bit of research on having the clergy perform a wedding, as well as the concept of a church wedding. Very common. No such teaching in the Bible. That's you know basically the, the, the doctrines or practices that that man has come up with. In fact, there, there's, if I remember right, within the Catholic Church, again, if I remember correctly. You know, there's a concept of, well, you know, you need to be married in the church. And because of that, there are certain scriptural, spiritual benefits that come to your marriage because the wedding happened in a church building. It's like, nah, not according to the scriptures. Uh, And finally, and here's one that's very common, the religious celebration of particular holy days by Christians. Christmas, which we mentioned earlier. Advent, Lent, Ash Wednesday, Easter, and I could just go on and on of religious holy days. Very common, but you will not find those terms in the Bible. You will not find the teaching in the Bible. You will not find the days and the events and the religious ceremonies surrounding them in the Bible. It's all man-made. Man-made doctrine uh, of various religious holy days. Again, addition to the scriptures, not coming from God. There you go, Brian. Uh, Any comments about uh, worship in general?
0: Yeah, some very interesting ones in there. And I also had never heard about, uh, well, we've all heard about, you know, clergy performing weddings. But I had never heard about kind of the origin of that. And, you know, it's interesting how, like, here in the U.S., some states maybe most, I don't know, required to be somebody that is I you might say clergy that, that you know, to perform the wedding. It's actually a requirement, so it makes us wonder if that was handed down, you know, once again through some Catholic tradition for instance and made its way into the law. You know, a lot of what Jeff touched on, we just had a series of podcasts on the traditions of men versus the Word of God, episodes one sixty two through one sixty six and we go into more detail on some of these elements of worship that Jeff mentioned, is specifically with like the Catholic Church and you know denominations that have one pastor, those kinds of things. So if you haven't heard that, I feel like that might be beneficial. Okay, the last section we want to talk about is the afterlife, and some, once again, common beliefs about teachings in the Bible about the afterlife that are just not there. So the first one is that people become angels when they die. Some people will say that or they believe it. And it's most likely a misinterpretation of what's said in Matthew chapter 22 and verse 30, where Jesus said, For in the resurrection they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels of God in heaven. But that particular statement that Jesus makes is not saying that therefore we will become angels when we die. In fact, if you were to look at that belief You'll see that it's also reflected in a lot of popular novels, like in the early 1900s and movies. Uh, Also in, in the classic 1946 American movie, It's a Wonderful Life, where there's a guardian angel, Clarence. So this is another example of sometimes popular culture, whether it's through art or movies or books, will popularize something. And people assume, well, that must be found in the Bible, but if you do a little digging... It doesn't actually say that. In fact, it kind of goes along with the next one, which is people go to heaven or hell when they die. And this is actually something that's taught by a lot of man-made religions. And, you know, some based on, on a misunderstanding of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 8, where Paul says, We are confident, yes, well-pleased, rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So they take that as a statement, and they make the assumption that when we die and separate from our body we are immediately with the Lord. But if you look at the context of what Paul's talking about there, he is not talking about that's what's going to happen when we die. He's saying it would just be much better, right? We would all much rather be with the Lord than sometimes be here on this earth and and so forth. Now, others base this statement on Luke chapter 23 and verse 43, where Jesus says to one of the criminals on, on the cross, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. So much like the previous verse about us immediately becoming angels when we die the bible makes it clear that after we die we will go to hades in which paradise is one of those realms so you have torments and you have paradise or abraham's bosom it's called as well and so when jesus said that to the thief on the cross he had the authority to say that he knew exactly what was going to happen to the soul once all men die And once again, it's not like he was saying, you're going to immediately go with me to heaven because Jesus went to Hades himself. We know that from scripture. And so once again, not becoming angels, not immediately going to heaven or hell. How about female angels? There's many who believe that there are male and female angels and some base it on Zechariah chapter 5 verse 9 where Zechariah is speaking to an angel and while he's speaking to the angel, he has a vision And here it says, quote, Then I raised my eyes and looked, and there were two women coming with the wind in their wings, for they had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. So notice there, it doesn't say that they were angels. And because Zechariah was speaking to an angel, surely if they were angels, they would have said it. But he was having a vision. And, you know, just like a stork lifting up a basket between heaven and earth, well, a stork couldn't do that. It would die, right? So it's just a vision that they were having. Now, over the years, people have claimed to see male and female angels. There's a lot of false religions that claim that. Once again, not found in the scriptures. And if you think about it, you know, our sex is tied to our physical bodies, which we will not have in the afterlife. And so one example where Paul talks about this in First Corinthians chapter 15 You want to read that for us, Jeff? Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 44, and then let's just jump and read verse 49 as well.
1: Sure, Brian, I can do that. So, verse 44, it is sown a natural body, referring to our bodies, it is raised a spiritual body. There's a natural body, and there's a spiritual body. Skipping down to verse 49, and as we have borne the image of the man of dust we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man of course this comes from the new king james version
0: yeah so here it's clear that we will not have physical bodies we will be raised a spiritual body verse 44 and then as it mentions in verse 49 we will bear the image of the heavenly man so our bodies will be transformed we read in other passages it will uh, will be changed and so once again there's not male and female in heaven because we won't have physical bodies And so therefore, would there be female angels? No. Okay, last one here. Halos encircling the head of a divine or sacred person. This is another one where, specifically with Jesus, you see this a lot. uh, When you see artists' renditions of Jesus over the years. And it was really a common depiction in medieval and renaissance art. And if you go and do a little digging here, a little research, what you'll see is that it was something that started in the 4th century by quote-unquote Christian emperors. The halo was used regularly at that time in representations of Christ or of the angels and even some saints throughout the Middle Ages. In fact, by the 5th century, it was sometimes given to angels. And by the 6th century, the, the halo became customary for like the Virgin Mary and other saints. But this is not mentioned in the Bible. In fact, nobody the Bible never says that there was a physical halo encircling the head of a divine person. And they were most likely when they did depicted this in art, trying to send some message that hey, they were holy, that sort of thing. But once again, the Bible doesn't mention it. It's in no way a symbol or representation of anything because it's just not found in the Bible. So Jeff, kind of an interesting collection here, right, of all of these different statements, quotes, beliefs, and so forth that some will claim that are in the Bible that are just not.
1: True. Sure. Well, and as you were talking, I was reminded, and it I think it's a pretty common phrase that you hear like in funerals not only are you know the deceased you know in heaven of course everyone goes to heaven <laughs> you know i don't know if i've ever heard of a funeral preach where or a funeral uh conducted where the person was you know condemned for their behavior even though it was egregious and obvious it's anyway setting that aside you know they're heaven and quote unquote looking down on us today and smiling right or, or equivalent phraseology based on what we've seen, like, you know, Luke chapter 16, uh, Hades, et cetera, that does not occur either. You know, that, again, that's a, a foreign concept to the scriptures that the, you know, the dead know exactly what's going on here. And furthermore can be contacted to let us know, you know, special, give a special insight as to what's going on here presently, or can give a special insight regarding the future. Again, foreign to the scriptures which we've kind of seen, is, as we've said, the main theme, you know, throughout the entire podcast, what people claim the Bible says versus what the Bible really says. And regardless of whether we're talking, you know, trivial items related to history or highly consequential things related to our salvation and our worship and being acceptable to God. Brian, any thoughts as we start to wrap things up today?
0: Yeah, just a final thought. We're really encouraging everybody, before you believe and repeat something that you've heard, just take some time to take a look at it, whether it's in the Bible or just looking at some history to see maybe where what's being said came from, to see if it's actually true, because it's all too easy just to say, well, you know, so-and-so, they're so knowledgeable. I would assume they've done their homework, so to speak, and they know it's in the Bible, so therefore we just repeat it. Not a good practice, not just with spiritual matters, right, but in life in general. So anyhow, just caution everybody and do your research, right, do your homework.
1: Good point. And just because it's it's commonplace or commonly accepted or everyone is saying it doesn't necessarily make it true. <laughs> exactly. Uh-huh. All right. So uh, for further uh, information for our listeners, if you want to dig into some of these topics uh, from our website, BibleQuestions.org, if you look under the topics menu, here's, here's kind of a, a sampling, if you will. We just got through mentioning A for afterlife. C for Calvinism, uh, as well as C for church government, Uh, D for the devil, P for prayer, R for religious titles that we mentioned earlier, and perhaps most importantly, S for salvation. If you go over to our podcasts menu item, Brian gave a a little bit of an insight into uh, a series we had, but Several podcasts that you can go back and listen to related to today's topic. That includes episode number five regarding death and the afterlife, uh, as well as episode 124, Questions on the Afterlife. Uh, he mentioned uh, episodes 83 through 89 regarding Calvinism. Two episodes, number 17 and 18, regarding the organization of the church. Uh, one uh, episode, number 37, related to the devil. Uh, and finally, on prayer, uh, lots of episodes. Uh, 23, 116 through 117, uh, focused prayer. And finally, uh, 74 through 80, an entire series on prayer. Lots of material at our website that our listeners can further their uh, investigation into what the Bible
0: really has to say. Thank you for listening to this edition of the Bible Questions podcast. We invite you to visit our website, biblequestions.org, where you can submit a Bible question to be answered, and you can also search archives where we have answered several hundred Bible questions over the years. Our website also has a host of free Bible study material, free correspondence courses, as well as sermons and a host of other material. Please stop by and check it out.